Welcome to the ETV Podcast with Eric the Violinist, a podcast made of conversations with everyday musicians doing amazing things. This week on the podcast, we have musician and arts administrator John Hellier, and we're, I'm really looking forward to this interview, and I hope you are too. Stick around. But before we get to the news and to the interview, I just want to remind everybody uh, that in a couple of weeks, I'll be going on tour with the three of my colleagues to Chicago, and it's the Chicago Chamber Music Project. We've officially named it that. We think it's relevant to what we're doing, you know, collaborating with musicians, creating chamber music. That's what we want to be doing. And tickets are still available for our November 16th concert at 7.30 p.m. at the Piano Forte Studios of Chicago on South Michigan Avenue. And if you're curious um, as to how to get the tickets, I'll provide a link in the description of the podcast episode, so that way you'll be redirected there. And now for the ETV News. The Chicago Lyric Opera Orchestra have reached a contract agreement with the organization recently, and we're happy to hear that the musicians are back performing and serving the Chicago opera community. Also this week in the news, we celebrate Pablo Casal's birthday. He was the first cellist to record the Bach solo cello sonatas. He died at age 96 in 1973 this week. And lastly, some fun news in the classical music world. The Boston Red Sox and the L.A. Dodgers are competing in the 2018 World Series. The Boston Symphony challenged the L.A. Philharmonic to the best theme song. I'll provide a link in the podcast description of the YouTube video where director Andres Nelson's makes the the challenge to the L.A. Phil. Okay, folks, so my guest today is John Hellier, a musician and arts administrator based in Boston. He's doing all kinds of amazing things, and uh, I want to welcome John. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. Yeah. It's great to be here. Yeah, no problem. Um, really appreciate you being on the podcast. And uh, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for a couple of weeks now, but you've been so busy. I just want to, I want people to know your story because you have a very interesting one. We go way back, maybe maybe for like six years. Is that right? That sounds pretty much in the ballpark to me. Yeah, it's quite a while. Gosh, I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah, it's been, it's been quite an adventure for you because... You have such an inspirational story, but before we get to that story, let's let's get to know you. Let the audience know a little bit more about you. Where are you based, and what are you doing at the moment? So I'm actually based in Baltimore right now. I'm newly moved to Baltimore where my girlfriend just started her medical residency at Johns Hopkins. Uh, but it's a bit more complicated than that because I am the newly minted artistic administrator for the orchestras of the Verbier Festival in Switzerland. So I'm working remotely from Baltimore, but I'm often in Switzerland or all over the rest of the world, hearing auditions, meeting with artists, um, going to concerts, all sorts of things. So Baltimore is the home base, but geographically, I'm kind of all over the place, which makes for an exciting life. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that you recently moved to Baltimore. Like, I, I know about the Verbier news. By the way, congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank well, you. Thank you. Yeah, for the people who are listening in, uh, John and I, we met at the Boston Conservatory. We both had the same professor. And you're, you are originally from Georgia. And I just want the audience to get a glimpse of your history and your transition from the player, from a violinist to 
being an arts administrator. So can you talk about your story for us? Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, as you said. And it's interesting because I was interested in the management side, the administration side, from very early on. And I, I specifically recall when I was a kid going to a recital of Isaac Perlman. And the door would open magically, and he would come out and start playing. And of course, I was mesmerized by the playing, but I also had a weird fascination with the question of who's opening the door for him? <laughs> who's behind the scenes back there that's you know, getting him onto the stage and handling the logistics behind the scenes? So there was always that interest in you know, the, the side of a performance that you don't see on the stage. And coupled with that, my parents are actually both business journalists. And specifically, my mom wrote for a long time for Fortune Magazine CEO profiles. So for instance, she was actually the last person who interviewed Steve Jobs before he passed away. Wow. So I grew up, yeah, I grew up very interested in leaders of, of various businesses and entrepreneurs and people of that sort. So I was interested in all of that, but I was also dead set from the age of probably five on being a concert violinist. That's all I wanted to do. It's all I ever really wanted to do up until I graduated high school and went to conservatory, which is where we met, of course, in, in our dearly beloved Richter Noren studio. Um, so while I was beginning conservatory, it was probably my sophomore year, I was starting to notice a lot of pain in my left arm. Started in my left arm and um, first noticed it actually at the Bowdoin Music Festival one summer where I was in attendance. And I did something really stupid, which is I just ignored it. I didn't pay attention to it. I sort of told myself, you know, if you can just bear down and suffer through this, great things are in store. So because of that, I would never say no to a gig. I would never sacrifice time in the practice room. In fact, probably the opposite. I would practice more. And I write it off at this point to being, you know, 20, 19, 20, and just naive to the fact that this was a contact sport and I had been victim to an injury because of it. So I played through it for a long time and by the time I was, let me see, I think I was 22, I ended up going to the number one doctor in the country for musician injuries who happens to be in Boston at Brigham and Women's. Um, his name is Michael Charnas and he's, he's really a legend in the field of this sort of stuff. And he basically read me the riot act and after a while when i wasn't getting better uh, it became clear to us that i had done serious damage to the nerve the ulnar nerve in my left arm and i'll never forget the day sitting in his um in his examination room and him sitting me down and saying you've got to have surgery you need to have elbow surgery or else you're not going to be able to finish your degree, let alone pursue any sort of career as a violinist. And 
at the time, I think the numbers here have improved a bit, but at the time, the success rate for that surgery was just 60%, which really is not <laughs> not all that great. Those odds um, don't, yeah, those, are, those odds yeah, are not really good. I mean, it might as well, it might as well be 50-50, but I really had no choice. So I went through with the surgery, and um, it was actually five or six months after the surgery that I was able to pick up the violin again. So I couldn't touch the instrument for about half a year. And in those five or six months, I was in this really weird limbo of not knowing whether or not I would be able to play again. Um, it, actually, it was in that time that the seeds were planted for me to become an arts administrator. And my, my parents basically said to me, look, you know, we understand you're injured, but you still have to do something. So maybe go get a job at Starbucks, something like that. And I wasn't all that interested in Starbucks. And don't get me wrong, I love the place. But um, <laughs> I sort of started to think to myself, how can I be involved in music without playing? Is there a way that I can make an impact on the field without having a violin in my hands? And that was around the same time that, that Benjamin Zander uh, had started to build what is now the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. And I was bold enough to, I'll never forget this, uh, write a letter to him offering my services as a volunteer to help him in recruiting players for the orchestra. Because at that point, you know, they really had a clean slate. They were trying to get this done in about a three-month period, but most of the seats at that point were not filled. So I wrote him a letter because somebody told me, you know, he's the kind of guy that would probably give you the time of day. And I wrote it on my computer. I paid someone who sat next to me in my music history class to handwrite it <laughs> because I figured Ben would be impressed by that. And, um, and my handwriting is atrocious. So I paid her 20 bucks and I had somebody who was auditioning for the VPYO give it to him. And, you know, it was the sort of thing where I really thought to myself, you know, this doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of, of working. Lo and behold, I got a call uh, about three or four days later from the man himself. And he wanted, I think he wanted me to help him make an Excel spreadsheet. I think that's, that's what the first task was. Oh, no kidding. Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, we can't pay you anything, but I really need help making what's called an Excel spreadsheet. Do you think you could assist with that? No way. <laughs> and, you know, it was at that moment that I was like, you know, I think I might have just gotten my foot in the door. So I was originally just supposed to go work for him for two days and then it would be over. And I ended up staying for nearly seven years. So since I began working as an arts administrator, which back then I was an intern, um, I've gone through many twists and turns and uh, graduated from BOCO. I was able to finish my degree, so the good news was that the surgery did work. But by the time I graduated, I sort of realized that, A, I wasn't the same player that I had been before I had the injury, and B, that I had some gifts in the world of administration that were a little bit too good to ignore. Uh, without sounding arrogant. Um, and plus, I, I had found that it was my new home. I really liked doing the work, and um, and here we are. 
every player asks this question all the time, you know, am I up for this performance career? And some people who are like, are on the fence about a performance career, they have arts administrations to back on because not only you, you don't have to leave the music industry. You don't have to leave the music profession. Even though if you're not playing your instrument, you, you have other abilities and other talents that you can take advantage of. And I also want to point out, Johnny, that you also read uh, The Art of Possibility, which is part of the reason why you talked to Ben Zander and you were familiar with his work previously. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I had read the book actually when I was recovering from surgery, which frankly, it was a really depressing and scary time. I didn't know what my future was going to look like. There were a lot of question marks. So I read the book actually upon seeing the TED Talk. So he has this amazing TED Talk. If those listening don't know about it, go on YouTube and, and search for Ben Zander. And the TED Talk is called The Transformative Power of Classical Music. And it was upon seeing that that I was like, I want to know more about this guy. And so that's really what, what got the ball rolling. Yeah, and actually, thanks to you, I was a part of this uh, Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. You actually was one of the people that recruited me, so thank you for that. And now the orchestra, <laughs> and now the orchestra has blossomed into this like this professional orchestra. You know, the very first year when we had uh, when the orchestra had this crazy idea of going on tour and people were a little skeptical, like, is he going to pull it off? Is the, is the board of BPO going to um, really approve of all the funding that's going to go into this project? And thankfully they did because it was such an incredible opportunity and it was uh, the tour of possibility. That's I think that's what the name of the tour was called. And the orchestra, for people who are not familiar with BPYO, is made of college students in their undergrad who are majoring in music, as well as people are in high school and in the youth. So you have this extraordinary opportunity to play someone who's 13 years old right next to you as a stand partner. Like, I don't know if you remember, John, but my second year when we went to Carnegie Hall, I was sitting next to Ilana. Ilana is this gifted Russian right. violinist who is having a, a blossoming career. She, I think she attends NEC at the moment, or I don't know where she is right now, but it was incredible playing Mahler V and Shostakovich V Symphony next to a 14-year-old. And granted, right. like it was incredible. I've never had that happen in my life. So, yeah, so... Yeah, I'll never forget, actually, just as a funny aside, uh, recruitment was... was really the name of the game for me in the early going for BPYO because we were building seat by seat something that didn't exist yet and that was so cool because I got to really think to myself who would be good as principal oboe who would be great as principal bassoon not just as a player but also as a personality and a piece of this puzzle a piece of this ecosystem that we're trying to build. And I think that's what has made BPYO so special. Coupled with Ben's innate ability to synthesize the gifts of so many people into great music making and great group thinking. The funny story I'll tell briefly about Alana is that when we were trying to recruit her, by then she was already a pretty prominent soloist. And I recall talking to her in, in saying, you know, what's your experience been like playing in orchestras? And her response, which she wasn't trying to be arrogant, she was being honest, was, 
I don't play in orchestras. I've only played with orchestras. And I thought to myself, ah, I see. We're dealing with somebody who's quite special here. So, you know, I'm very, very proud of the BPYO. I, I see that as the place where the story began for me as an administrator. And the great thing about working with Ben was that he gave me basically free reign to make creative decisions and recruit people who I felt were good fits. And he, he really trusted me, even though I didn't have any experience, so to speak, in administration. So I'll be forever, forever grateful to him for that. And my journey with BPYO actually has continued into a dimension I never thought would happen, but I've produced now two major recordings um, with them, Mahler 6 and also Mahler 9. And that's just been a fantastic experience for me. One that I couldn't possibly have envisioned back when I was an intern, but something that I'm so proud of and so happy to be a part of. So, yes. So tell us about this producing. So what does it take to be a producer to uh, a major record like this? Because you transition from this arts administrative role where you're recruiting players and you're, you're, art, you're, you're the architect of this of this group in many ways, because you're, like you said, you're trying to find the right people for the personality of the piece and for the group, so that way it's easy for everybody to work with each other. Describe the transition into the producer. How, what was it like working as a producer when recording Mahler 6 and Mahler 9? And this was with BPO? This was with BPYO. BPYO, oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very interesting question because the story of becoming a producer, it was not a straight shot. So what happened, and I'll just be totally transparent about this, is that by the time I was 25, I had moved my way up um, in the BPO to production manager, which meant I was overseeing the logistics for both the youth orchestra and professional orchestra, and also you know, had my hands in quite a few other pots at the BPO um, at the same time. I got burned out. And I, I reached a point where I was 25 years old and I realized that the music itself had actually lost its ability to move me and its impact on me. I should say, I had lost the ability to be moved by it. That's a better way of putting it for sure. Mm, okay. But becoming numb to the actual emotion and sort of thinking of what I was doing is just a business. That's something that I had allowed to creep in. So what happened was I quit because I really was afraid that this thing that was so beloved to me had become just sort of a nine to five job or nine to 10 PM or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, usually um, with the classical music organizations, you're like yeah. working from nine to midnight sometimes. So Right, right. That's full that's disclosure true. for people working in arts administration. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no such thing as a weekend, and um, an 80-hour work week is, is pretty typical. But if you love it, then it doesn't matter. So I quit, and I actually went and worked as the first mate on a sailboat out west. I was working on um, an antique schooner for about a year. And then I moved to New York, and my thinking in, in quitting arts administration initially, because I was burned out, was, you know, I should try to 
latch on to my interest in entrepreneurs and business management. And, you know, maybe I should go to business school. Maybe I should try to go work at a startup because I'm a pretty creative guy and, and I could, you know, I could probably do pretty well in those fields. Totally wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> tell I, us about that. What I learned quickly, yeah. So what I learned quickly, I mean, I loved working on the ship. That that was an unbelievable, life-changing experience. And it sort of allowed me to take one big step back from everything in my life and just re-examine my priorities. Also taught me a lot about what I was good at. Uh, but when I went to work in New York, I was doing consulting for three startups, um, all of which were not at all related to music. So there was no no music making involved at all. Um, they were marketing startups. What I realized quickly was that I could do the work, but I had no actual interest in the product. <laughs> you know, nothing about um, marketing success for a corporation was fulfilling to me. And because of that, I was so, uh, I guess, uninterested with the work I was doing and, and going to work every day became just this task that I had to check off. It sounds and like, was, it sounds yeah. like you kind of like lost your freedom in some ways. Exactly. And, and there was just no, no passion. What I learned about that was I'm the type of person who is best when what they're working towards is something that they're passionate about. So if the end result of an email I'm sending. You know, maybe it'll take 500 emails to actually get this something done, but if the end result is something that I really believe in, that I'm really passionate in, it doesn't matter. I'll send a thousand emails if I have to. But working at a startup, that was not the case. So while I was in New York, I gradually got sucked back into the arts, in arts administration, and you know, people would reach out and say, hey, can you maybe help me organize this concert, or hey, can you check this out for me? And it was at that point in time that I became super interested in producing. I've always been somebody who's um, extremely passionate about recordings, uh, going back to the very first recordings ever made. And not just classical recordings, but, but really all recordings. But since classical is sort of my wheelhouse, I started to think about what it takes to produce a, a record for a symphony orchestra. And learning that, which was an entirely new skill set, was so cool for me. So by the time I did come back to Boston, the BPO was very interested in launching its own record label. And it was actually the same sort of deal as when I was an intern. They gave me this potential thing that I could do. And then I latched onto it and did the thing. So we launched Rattle Media, which is the name of the, the, the label. I guess it was launched now two years ago. And at this point, we've produced four recordings. I've produced four recordings for them. And those recordings are with the Boston Philharmonic, the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, and also the Philharmonia Orchestra in London, where Ben has a very long conducting relationship, conducting and recording relationship. So to answer your question about what's involved with producing a classical recording, what I loved about it is that it took me directly back to the music itself. Mm. It is 100% about score reading, about understanding the broader intentions of the composer, about knowing where the piece 
your recording fits into the lexicon of, of the genre, and also about managing artists in an effective way. Um, time management, logistics management, uh, but every single thing you do, the goal is to get the best possible sound in a recording session. And in many so, ways, I would, in addition to that, sorry to interrupt you, but in, in addition to no, that, okay. I think it, you have to be on the same, you have to know the score as well as a conductor, if, some, if not sometimes even more. I would argue because yeah. you're you're in the booth listening to everything, and sometimes a conductor in the in the studio might not catch all those details that you listen in the booth. What the sound gets picked up on the mic, it's completely different. I would I would imagine, right? Oh yeah, the experience of listening to an orchestra in a studio or a booth is completely different than listening in the audience itself. Um, it can be a good different. It can also be a bad different, and. What I'll say, which is actually a very interesting thing for non-musicians to know, is that there are really two types of recording that you make with orchestras playing classical music. One type is a quote-unquote live recording, which means typically your framework for the recording itself is the live concert performance, and your editing options are from the dress rehearsal or the sound check for that performance. So that's one option. The other option is a proper recording session. And for that, you're, you're really, you're tackling whatever work it is in bite-sized chunks. So these chunks are called takes, and sometimes you'll have, you know, 300 plus takes for one symphony. So either way, your, your, your post-production involves editing the material that you have into a complete performance of the symphony, but it's two very different routes in terms of how you get there. The approach is different. So for the BPYO, for the BPYO, the BPO, we don't really do recording sessions. Same thing for the Boston Symphony, they don't really do recording sessions. Um, you're pulling all of the material you use in post-production from either the concert or the dress rehearsal. But for the Philharmonia in London, our recording sessions are done in takes. So afterwards, you know, we might be working with up to 500 takes for, for one project. So different ways of skinning the same cap. This is, I'm learning a lot too, actually. I didn't realize the amount of, um, the amount of time for one. I mean, I, I, I do recording sessions too, but not on the big scale like an orc, like an orchestral player. And um, I think it's just an interesting perspective for, for musicians and non-musicians to actually grasp. I want to transition quickly, John, because we're running out of time here. Tell us about sure. your recent, your position at Verbier. What are your duties? What are you going to be doing? And how are you going to grow the organization or help grow the organization? Right. So I, like most people, had been a huge fan of Verbier for as long as I could remember. And mainly, I was aware of Verbier through Medici, which is the streaming service that films all of its concerts, which is pretty remarkable. Actually, the, the, the full story is that there were a couple members of the orchestras at Verbier, this was last spring, who got an email from the administration telling them that this position of artistic administrator for the orchestras had opened up and asking if they had any 
ideas for people who would be good fits for the role. And lo and behold, two different people from two different orchestras of Verbier put my name into the hat, at least so I'm told. And actually, I wasn't looking for a job at the time. I was pretty comfortable doing what I was doing and, and felt like I was growing. But um, sometimes in life, doors open that you can't ignore. So when the role itself crossed my desk, I, you know, I, <laughs> I was astonished. And as the application process began, the interview process and, and everything else went on, I started to realize that this was what was right for me. And what the role involves mainly is ensuring that the orchestras of the Verbier Festival, of which there are three, right? So there's the junior orchestra, there's the festival orchestra, and there's the chamber orchestra. You're ensuring that those orchestras, A, provide the highest possible level of performance at Verbier each summer, and B, that those who are there for the training experience, which is the individuals in the junior orchestra and festival orchestra are learning as much as they possibly can from the incredible guest artists and conductors who come to their day each summer. So it's really orchestral training on the very highest level. You could think of it as sort of a European version of New World, although it's, it's a bit different in, in some ways. Yeah, and in addition and, to that, I think um, Tanglewood and Verbier are like the two summer orchestral festivals that I can think of that are the top two in the world. I don't, I can't think of anything else. Right. Well, I mean, there's, there are a few others. There's, of course, Lucerne. Right, uh, Lucerne, of course. The Academy of the West. There's NRO. But, you know, Verbier sits in um, a very high position on the list. Uh, it also sits in a very high position in terms of altitude. It's quite high up in the Alps. Yeah. Swiss uh, Alps, yeah. So I'm, I'm responsible for ensuring those things that I just mentioned, and that involves listening to all auditions uh, for those who are who are hoping to come to Verbier as orchestral musicians. This year we are going to, I think it's seven cities throughout Europe and Russia and the U.S., and I chair the audition panels. I work with the coaches, so for the Verbier Festival Orchestra, the coaches are the principal players from the Metropolitan Opera. For the junior orchestra, it's more of kind of uh, a hodgepodge of amazing players from all over the world, orchestral players. And we guide all of the ensembles along as a team. And I also work with um, the CEO, Martin Engstrom, pretty closely, and the rest of the administrative staff to plan the programming, uh, to think about guest conductors, to think about repertoire, to think about initiatives that we want to expand on to keep growing the Verbier tradition and, and keep making it totally vital for as many musicians as possible from around the world. The thing I think is really interesting about Verbier, we were mentioning the other um, orchestral training programs and festivals and, and so on and so forth. The thing that's amazing about Verbier is that you can have somebody from, let's just say, Palestine sitting in the concertmaster's seat, and next to them is sitting somebody from China, and then the principal second is somebody from Russia, and their co-principal is somebody from, you know, Tallahassee, Florida. 
it's really a complete synthesis of players from all over the world. And what I find really cool about this is that the styles that they come from orchestrally are all different. And the conductors who they're playing under are all from different places and from different stylistic backgrounds. And it's a chance for them to learn from their colleagues, to learn from conductors, and to find a common ground. The word symphony, quite literally in Latin, means many voices sounding together. That's exactly what Verbier is. And it's such a beautiful thing to be a part of. I'm just very honored and very proud to be part of the team. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's John Hellier, musician and arts administrator. Uh, we want to thank you, John, for being on the podcast. I was really excited that you agreed to be on the podcast because such an interesting view, interesting perspective, and you have a fascinating story. So it was really nice to catch up with you. Hopefully we get to hear more about your endeavors in the professional world, especially at Verbier and other projects that you have. And we'll hope to talk to you soon in the future. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been a true pleasure, and I look forward to continuing to listen to this podcast. It's, it's one of my very favorite things. Great. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the ETV podcast. If you like what you've heard, I'd appreciate it if you leave a comment, subscribe to the podcast, and also rate the podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>